Welcome to ROH Strong Podcast. Here is your host, Kevin Eck. What's up, Honor Nation? Welcome to episode 23 of the ROH Strong Podcast, the official podcast of Ring of Honor Wrestling. My guest personifies pure wrestling. He's arguably the greatest technical wrestler in the world today, and he's also one half of the ROH World Tag Team Champions, and he's one of the favorites to win the ROH Pure Title Tournament. He is Jonathan Gresham. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to have you on. Uh, like I said, man, we're, we're talking about pure wrestling, and, and uh, you know, first person I think of is, is definitely you. But I got to ask you the question first off. I mean, I, I know how much you love this business uh, and how at home you feel in a wrestling ring. What was it like for you not being able to wrestle for six months? Um... I took it really well, actually. Uh, I've been wrestling for about 15 years now, and uh, I've never had, like, a break this long. I think the most I might have had time off from, like, not wrestling at all was probably, like, a week. And I think that was because I was probably, like, sick or something. I can't really remember. But, um, but yeah, uh, I think, you know, it hit me that things were getting really serious uh, with the past versus present shows. Um, I had flown from Baltimore to Las Vegas and I landed, you know, taking an Uber from the airport to Samstown and then uh, got in my room. And uh, I was there for maybe an hour and a half, two hours relaxing. And then I got the um, the mass email that all the roster guys got about the shows not happening. So I had to Uber back to the airport and pretty much fly back home, switch my flight. So I was in travel all day. Um, maybe the next couple of days I realized that, oh, man, wrestling is going to be on pause for a little while. I realized that we weren't going to be doing any shows. So I literally just started to binge, you know, like Netflix episodes and Amazon episodes and seasons and things like that. And just really like dive into like eating all the bad stuff that I always like to eat. Um, <laughs> and I just like binge cinnamon rolls and like cookies and all kinds of stuff like that. So that was like the first quarter of the pandemic for me, just like eating everything in sight. <laughs> um, but after that, uh, my fiance and I, uh, we uh, are pretty close with the guys that own the gym that we, we go to here. And we asked them to borrow some equipment and they allowed us to do that. So um, we would every morning go to uh, like a Walmart or a Target parking lot and then just do like workouts and wind sprints and things of that nature. So uh, once I came out of like the binging thing, that's what, you know, maybe I'm going to say like a month into it, a month into the pandemic, I realized your know, wrestling is eventually going to come back and I can't be a tub of goo when it comes back. So <laughs> we got, we got back to working out and stuff. So, well, they say you're going to come out of this pandemic, either a hunk or a chunk. And uh, <laughs> I'm leaning towards the chunk myself. <laughs> right. But then again, Nothing I don't have like to that. get in the ring and compete, compete for the pure title. So I'm sure you're, you know, back to the great shape that we saw you in beforehand. Uh, did you get a chance to to get in the ring at all during that time off at the ROH dojo or, or anywhere? I mean, did you ever see the inside of a ring? No. Um, 
Unfortunately, no. Uh, the Ring of Honor Dojo was closed down. Ring of Honor has been doing a tremendous job at like keeping everyone safe. And that also includes our students and uh, staff that you know work at the dojo um, frequently. So uh, everything was really shut down. So uh, grappling was uh, just non-existent for me. Um, closer to maybe what's this? This is a uh, what? Maybe last month I started to uh, run classes at the MCW. Um, training facility in Joppa, Maryland. So I've been able to like, uh, you know, get a couple of reps in now uh, for like the last maybe three or four weeks. So um, getting back in ring shape, uh, you know, just being in the ring just makes me happy working with younger guys and just uh, learning from them and then learning from me is just what I enjoy. Well, I know I want to ask you a you know, personal question. Uh, you mentioned your fiance. I think most fans know your fiance is Jordan Grace, uh, Impact Wrestling star. You guys actually had to postpone your wedding because of the pandemic, didn't you? Yeah, we did. She wasn't happy about it. It, it <laughs> really wasn't going to go down until, like, I I really had to, like, you know, kind of talk some sense into her, talk her down, because uh, she wanted to continue on and uh, soldier through. But uh, I, I was worried about, like, um, you know, elderly people on my side of the family that were, like, flying in, and then a lot of her family stays in the area, and a lot of her family's, uh, you know, up in age. So I was really kind of thinking about them uh, instead of us. So I kind of convinced her that was the best route to go. So we rescheduled it. Yeah. So you reset the date? Yes, yes, yes. It's actually um, this month on the 27th. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I know that uh, you and Jordan also became homeowners recently. So I have to ask you about that. How does that feel? Is, uh, I guess, you know, once you have a mortgage to pay, is that when you truly know that like, adulthood has arrived uh i guess so but i think i have a more like i have more respect for homeowners now because i didn't everybody would always say oh congratulations on being homeowners and i always thought to myself well you just buy a house like you buy a pair of shoes but no it is not the same like not at all like there were times where i was just like yo babe let's just not do this let's just stop because it was so difficult so many like you know hoops we had to jump through and it was like last second things that if we didn't get it within the day or by the end of the day, we wouldn't be able to get the house. And it was just like, it was almost like they were trying to prevent us from getting the house. You know, that's what it felt like at times. Um, but, you know, we kept each other grounded and, um, you know, stay persistent and we got the house. <laughs> yeah. Probably one of, you know, some of the least favorite things to do in life is, is uh, buy a house and, and uh, shop for a car. Not pleasant experiences, but once, the, but once you've done them, then you're happy that it, that it's over with. And uh, you know, yeah. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully we don't have to buy another house for quite a while. I don't want to go through that again. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Um, let me ask you one other question about, uh, about your fiance. Uh, obviously you guys are both in the business. So I guess I was just curious, do you, you work for other companies. So is that tough with travel schedules and things like that? Is that more of a challenge for you guys because you don't work together? Um, not really. Cause outside of wrestling, we spend loads of time together. We, we even sometimes like, yeah, I think she had some show in England and then I had progress in England or maybe we we're on the same show. And from that, we ended up booking a trip, uh, like a week vacation in uh, Italy. And so we're able to like do loads of cool stuff because of professional wrestling. So we're definitely blessed in that regard. Um, so we spend a loads of time together in between, but like it's this times like where I went to super juniors and then I was gone for like a month, I think. And then I came back and she was gone to England or 
somewhere for like two weeks or something like that. And then when she came back, it was like we hung out for a day. Then I had to go to Ring of Honor tapings or something like that. So it was like, I mean, we make the most of the time together. It is difficult, but not as difficult as some people think because like we understand wrestling. We understand like our careers and we know this is not forever. So it's just like we're doing it for now, you know, 10 years, 15 years from now, we'll be getting annoyed of each other being at the house all the time. So I think we're just really <laughs> enjoying this time of traveling and wrestling. So you guys watch each other's matches and, and critique each other's matches or is wrestling the last thing you want to discuss uh, when you have your quality time together? Uh, it's 50, 50. Um, it really just depends. Um, I know I, I, I ask everyone's opinion. I, I, I have the mindset that you can learn from everybody. Uh, I have like, you know, people I talk to that are just fans. And when we talk on the phone or whatever in person, I ask them like different questions, but, uh, me and my lady, um, yeah, we, we do that. And it's, I think it's like 50, 50, you know, sometimes we get in wrestling mode. Like right now I'm really excited. I got a couple of like independent matches coming up and I'm, I'm feeling really excited about wrestling against Shelly and then Lee Martiardi coming up uh, in September this month and in the next month. So like right now, like I'm really like watching a lot of wrestling, like more than I normally do and talking to my lady about like what she thinks about this or that. So yeah, we do it, but not as often as like people might think. You just mentioned watching wrestling again. Was it difficult for you um, during this break? Because obviously, as we know, Ring of Honor took a hiatus. Uh, but other companies were still running. There was plenty of wrestling on television. Did you watch it or was it like, man, I don't, I, I can't get in the ring. So I don't even want to watch anybody else do it. No. Um, my thing is, this is me, you know, uh, before the pandemic, um, I don't watch current wrestling. So like, this is not me trying to sound cool or anything. It's really that like, if I watch something a lot, definitely like wrestling, I start to, like become what I, I watch. So if I watch loads of current wrestling, like subconsciously I'll start doing those things in my matches. And then I'll watch my match back and say, why am I doing that? So I, I pretty much stick to like things that I enjoyed as like when I was coming up when I was just like a fan crossing over into being a wrestler. I mean, I'm still a fan now, but you know, profession wise. So like, um, I watch a lot of like old all Japan, like eighties, all Japan, like just maestro wrestling from Mexico, anything grappling related. I actually like just sit on my phone and watch like loads of like amateur wrestling tournaments too. Cause I really like to do that. I just, <laughs> my bones and my body wouldn't be able to take actual grappling anymore. So I, I just don't partake, but, um, but yeah, I, it's nothing against what's going on now. Uh, because to be honest, I'm pretty sure you're going to ask me about it. Like, what's it like wrestling in empty arenas and stuff? It doesn't bother me. Like a lot of people bring it up. Like it's a bad thing because there's no energy or whatever. But I was trained by Mr. Hughes and um, down at WWE 4, uh, the training facility, we started out literally uh, like two or three times a week doing practice shows in front of nobody, just a camera and Mr. Hughes. And um, in one night I would do like three or four matches. I would do like a singles match a triple threat, a tag match and a six man tag, you know, and we just get reps doing all kinds of matches. And that went on for maybe a year and a half. And then it turned into us opening the doors to like, to fans from the area. And they would pay $5 to come in and we would, we would pack about like 30 people in the building, you know, and just do those matches and start trying to like add stories to the shows and stuff. So guys understand like 
placement on the card and how to be a champion and how to be a face, how to be a heel and how to transition, how to do promos and stuff like that. So we practiced all of that stuff. And then um, fast forward to maybe 2010 when I started working with Drew Cardero at uh, Beyond Wrestling. When he first started uh, out, like most of his shows is in like garages and stuff like that. So like I was wrestling in front of the boys and sometimes no one just in front of Drew with the hard cam, you know? So like um, it doesn't bother me to wrestle in front of no one. Like the way I wrestle, I don't need, I think a lot of wrestlers rely on the sound of matches. So when you do something, you know, you're doing a good job because you heard the, Oh, or the Oz. But for me, like, I don't really ignore that, but I don't need it either. You know? So um, wrestling in an empty arena doesn't bother me one bit. That's interesting. You know, we had Rocky Romero on the podcast last week, and he said almost the exact same thing, that he doesn't feel like he, like some wrestlers need the crowd, um, whether it's, you know, part of their character or whatever it is, they need to play off the crowd, but he didn't feel like he really needed to do that. So it's interesting to hear you kind of say the same thing. Um, I mean, I yeah, that's the reality up, of it, man. Yeah, Sorry. I brought up Mr. Hughes, though. Like, I, I got to yeah. ask um, I never met Mr. Hughes. I only know him from, you know, what I've seen on TV over the years. He seems like a pretty intense guy. Is he, or was that just his <laughs> own screen persona? No, he is in his own way. He's very serious when it comes to wrestling. And um, he was very serious on like, uh, like, and like making sure we understand the basics and the fundamentals of like professional wrestling. Cause without that, you know, at some point in time, you're going to fumble the ball when you're given the ball. So he really like made sure we understood the basics. And, uh, you know, he is intense, but he he's a very caring guy. He looks out for his students and everything like that. He didn't take me on the road. I was allowed to do whatever I wanted, but he wouldn't take me on the road until he felt that I was ready. And so I remember I, uh, he thought I was ready for a show and he took me on the road to Alabama somewhere or Mississippi. And, uh, I had a surprise when I got there, I was working with him. So I felt more comfortable. Um, and so we wrestled the match and, uh, he, he, he's very big on like calling in the ring. And at that time I wasn't really great at it, but I felt comfortable with him. And, uh, you know, he also wanted to make sure that, when you approach a match, it's 50-50. You're only as good as a guy across the ring from you. Uh, that's how you're going to look, as good as he's going to allow you to look, because I can tell you that any uh, later. But, like, essentially he wanted me to call my parts in the ring. We had already kind of went over it before. But uh, out there he wanted to make sure that I was still calling and talking to my opponent. And so when it was my time to call, I think I fumbled the ball, and uh, I did this top rope move, and he didn't know to be there because I didn't call it to him. So I completely, like, crashed and burned. And I could see the look on his face, even through the sunglasses, is to look like, you messed up, we're going home. So he went outside, <laughs> got a chair, came back in the ring and put me over with the disqualification. <laughs> and he hit me with the chair. But um, yeah, he wasn't going to let me beat him if I wasn't doing a good job. So I can appreciate that. And uh, he made me earn everything. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's a great, great lesson learned. I guess it has to be a little nerve wracking when you're in there with your, your teacher. Um, as opposed to one of your peers? It can be, but like, like, you know, at that point he was just my trainer. Now he's like one of my closest friends. Um, but uh, he never had that, like whenever I was around him, he never like gave off that vibe of him, like being over me or like 
consistently trying to teach me. He was just a dude that loved wrestling. And I really appreciated that on the road. He just told us dope stories about WWF and WCW and ECW. And uh, that was like some of the best times of my career, really just riding the car, listening to cool stories. Talk so. about stealing the Undertaker's urn. Oh man, if he tells me that one more time, I'm probably <laughs> gonna have to. I'm probably gonna have to give him a chop in the goosey pipe, as he would say. <laughs> I'm sure he gets probably tired of people asking him about it too, or maybe not. Maybe he <laughs> loves telling the story. I don't know. I think he loves telling that story. I think he genuinely feels like he's never told me that story. <laughs> I feel like he feels that way. So. You mentioned uh, calling it in the ring, though, and I guess in many ways, you're kind of an old school guy in, in, in a modern world. And I think fans, you know, hardcore fans know that that's kind of the way it was done back in the day, as you called things in the ring. Whereas today, um, I mean, obviously, maybe fans don't know this. I don't know. But anybody who's ever been backstage, you can see guys, they really go over things, sometimes move for move. They kind of memorize the whole match. What is your... Uh, preference I mean do you like literally going in the ring knowing the finish and calling the rest on the fly or no to be perfectly honest if like there wasn't a certain standard to professional wrestling that you and and, and shows are like expecting you to to meet I would love to just go out there and just the promoter tells me hey this guy's going over or this guy's going over and then we go out there and just make it work like don't talk about anything like I would love for wrestling to be that way, but it's not. So uh, it just really depends on who I'm working with. My biggest thing, I even when I like coach guys now, I always talk about you, when you go into a match, you want to make sure that your opponent is comfortable. You know, because um, you you understand what you can do. You you're not really sure about this other person. Normally, we only come in contact with these guys a couple times a year at shows. Definitely when you're on the independent. So. To be honest, you don't want a guy feeling obligated to do a maneuver or do a certain sequence. Uh, most people are going to want to do it because they don't want to say no to you, but you really want to make sure they're comfortable because if they're not comfortable and they might mess it up, I always say definitely in today's wrestling, like uh, any match wrestled on the independence is being recorded now. It's not like when I was growing up before YouTube really hit big, like your first impression is super important. So if you're like, a new guy and you're out here calling these big spots to another new guy and he's not ready for them, but he's saying, yeah, because he just wants to, you know, have, you know, a good match with you and try. Uh, and he's not comfortable. He goes out there and botches or messes it up. That match is going to go online and somebody is going to watch that and see you for the very first time. And that's your first impression and first impressions are what lasting impressions normally. Right. So I always say, just make sure your opponents are really comfortable. And um, I think most of that is being able to being like, communicate in the ring clearly for your opponent to be able to hear you. So like being able to call it on the fly is super important to me because sometimes the ball gets fumbled. And once that happens, guys get freaky and they start like freaking out. And so you got to calm them down by talking to them and letting them know, okay, well, we're just going to do this. And then we're back on track. And being able to do that has saved me several times in matches on even my end for messing up. And then the other guy was freaking out, you know, and I was like, Oh, I'm sorry, up, but you know, here we are, we're going to do this now. And then we were fine and nobody was wised up to it. So. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I've on the indie level, I've seen matches, even matches I've been involved with. Um, I've done a little bit of refereeing. I've done some managing. Um, you know, I've been in there when the talent has literally gone over every single spot 
in the back and, and, you know, they keep repeating it and memorizing it. And then they get out there and somebody forgets something. And then the whole ball, you know, the whole house of cards just comes apart because they're not used to calling it on the fly. So I think, Mm -hmm. you know, make a great point there for sure. With that, something else I talked to like the younger guys about is when I was coming up, you always was told to like, if you knew somebody that was going to a show and you weren't on it, um, you know, you wanted to go to show face to, you know, hopefully get on the show one day. Let's say that's still something that's done in wrestling. If you end up at a show, I've been in situations before where a promoter goes, oh, Gresham, you're here. Uh, you know, can you do this match because so-and-so is late? Uh, can you burn up like, you know, 15 minutes or whatever? And I'm like, you, you got like three minutes to go on. Can you do this for me? And like, I was comfortable doing it because I could call in the ring. So I just said, okay, the finish is just roll up or something like that. And we just get there and just have fun and just wrestle. Um, and a lot of the times guys are going to be put in that situation, even on shows like Ring of Honor. At some point in time, you're probably going to be told to, you know, go over. I was at a show where I had to wrestle Desmond Xavier. It was in Ohio somewhere. And the show after us wasn't there yet. And they couldn't plan. So the promoter said, originally we had 15 minutes. And uh, he came to us and said, hey, man, can you guys – you like go like 20 or 30 minutes because the other matches are here and they haven't even planned the match. And I think they were the main event. And so we had already had our like 10 to 15 minute match planned. So I just like looked at Dez and I was like, yo, we got to like do the whole beginning, like 10 minutes on the fly, bro. And then we were just like, okay, we went out there and we, we did it and we were comfortable, you know, and that's needed. Uh, it's not something that's taught a lot now and practiced a lot now that I, I noticed. And it, it's kind of sad, you know, so. Yeah, it's it's a lost. I just want to say it. Yeah, it's a lost art form, uh, no doubt about it. When we come back, we're going to talk all about the Pure Tournament and other things with Jonathan Gresham right after this. Think you know a lot about Ring of Honor? Well, put your knowledge to the test against the top fans and stars of Ring of Honor. That's right, Ring of Honor trivia returns, and it will be played across Zoom. To join, get your team of three to ten and email rohtrivia at gmail.com. Previous editions have seen near-perfect scores and former world champions, former tag team champions, and the top stars of Ring of Honor compete for Trivia Supremacy. You won't want to miss it. Sign up now, rohtrivia at gmail.com to reserve your spot and your team's spot in this round of Ring of Honor Trivia. Welcome back to the ROH Strong Podcast. My guest is the octopus, Jonathan Gresham. I want to talk about the Pure Tournament uh, first, I have to ask you, the, the original <laughs> Pure Tournament that was scheduled for April uh, was going to start in April, Pure Excellence. How disappointed were you when that had to be postponed? Because I know you've been waiting for this for a long time. Yeah, I had been, but I, I wasn't disappointed because I can understand what's going on in the world. And I think, you know, uh, the roster's safety is most important. So I was very grateful that Ring of Honor decided to, you know, postpone all the shows and continue to pay the talent and just really look out for everyone. Because behind every talent is uh, is family. And, uh, you know, uh, it's safer for them for us not to be going out and meeting fans and traveling through airports and meeting people at, you know, uh, car rental places. So, you know, I wasn't disappointed at all. Um, like I said, I took that time to binge out on food. So I was actually vibing pretty well at the moment, at the time. Gotcha. Uh, so we know so far in the tournament, uh, we've seen that uh, you defeated Wheeler, Utah to advance to the Block B semifinals where you will face uh, Matt Seidel. I know you've worked with uh, Yuta before. What are your thoughts on him? Uh, what are your thoughts on the match that you guys had? And do you think he's someone that we'll see more of in Ring of Honor or that we should see more of? 
number one, yes, we should see more of Willer Utah. And if Ring of Honor does not do something about it, I assure you that the foundation will. Um, I feel that Willer Utah was really, really, really good when I worked with him, I believe in 2017 at Beyond Wrestling. Um, and to be honest, he, he, he beat me, you know, I, I never wanted to bring that up, but he beat me. And, uh, I have to admit, uh, going into this match, I, I, I was, I was like at the front of my, at the front of my brain, he had that confidence that he had beaten me before. When you beat someone before you, you kind of, uh, in some ways you underestimate them and you feel like they're somewhat beneath you. I'm not saying maybe he felt that way, but I'm pretty sure he had a confidence that, you know, um, was his downfall. So, uh, for me, I continue to train i continue to watch wrestlers and study people from all over the world guys i've never met before because who knows when i'm going to meet them i study everyone and i know everyone's weakness and that is uh that is how i essentially win my matches who would you consider and i know this is a broad question but some names that come to mind if i say who are some of the best pure wrestlers in the world today and they can be in ring of honor or not it just i'm just you know looking at the entire business. They're scattered across the globe. Uh, in Canada, we're talking about Tyson Dukes. We're talking about Daniel Maccabe. Uh, there's Diana Perosa uh, from TNA Impact. I think she's the women's champion right now. We're looking at um, Fred Yehai, who was in the pure tournament but not signed. Uh, Willie Yuta as well. Um, someone that I've grown to respect, uh, Lee Martiardi. I'm going to work with him for the first time. Uh, at Joe Janela's spring break uh, this October. Uh, Alex Shelley, of course. Um, when you talk about Japan, we're looking at, uh, I believe his name is Heidi Suzuki, and then Ikuto Hidaka as well. Um, Hidaka trained me in Zero One as well as Alex Shelley and numerous other guys from, you know, uh, around the independence. Um, from my neck of the woods in Atlanta, Georgia, I would like to think of uh, my friend, Black Baron, um, also Kyle Matthews. Uh, I'm not sure if he's still active or not, but um, I was a fan of his when I was on the independence in Georgia. Um, there's several, man, even from Mexico. You're speaking about like Solar, Negro Navarro. Um, there's so many guys that wrestle and present themselves as pure wrestlers all around the world that I believe deserve a shot here in Ring of Honor. Well, and hopefully once a pure uh, champion is crowned, Maybe we will see that. Maybe we'll see some of those names coming in to challenge for that, for that championship. I know that's the, I think that's the hope. Uh, I remember a couple years ago, you did an interview with Caprice Coleman for his uh, pulpit. And mm -hmm. you kind of hinted at wanting to bring the, the pure title back. Um, but then it didn't happen. I mean, was that kind of your intention at that point to bring the title back? Man, to be honest, since I've been here in Ring of Honor, I've been wanting the pure title back because I, I feel that that's what made Ring of Honor um, different. Nobody else can present pure professional wrestling because it belongs to Ring of Honor. All the best pure professional wrestlers in the world walked through Ring of Honor. Um, when you talk about Danielson, Cabana, Joe, you know, uh, Doug Williams, Shelley, all those guys walked through these doors here at Ring of Honor. Um, it also... Ring of Honor, you know, when it started, it was the alternative to the mainstream, uh, not mainstream, but the biggest independent company at the time, which was CZW. And then they went to grow and challenge other places like TNA and then uh, WWE and now AEW. And 
my thing is pure wrestling helps ring of honor continue to be the alternative in professional wrestling. When you look at all the major companies around the world, when you think about pure wrestlers, how many of those pure wrestlers are working for these companies? You might see two maximum. That's it. Maybe three. Uh, the suppression of pure wrestlers is something that I've been trying to work against for years now and speak out about. Um, it's very difficult because people don't see um, professional wrestling the way that I do. When I grew up, and I went to different seminars and listened to different guys on podcasts. I learned that professional wrestling is supposed to be a variety show, but the climate that we're currently in, there's one style that reigns supreme. And that's this high impact, high flying style that everybody wants to do, whether you're talking about cruiserweights or heavyweights. Um, and it's kind of sad to see that a lot of different styles are starting to die out. When you talk about brawlers, when you talk about the maestros from Mexico, um, you got most luchadors are wrestling exactly like American indie guys now. Um, and that style of being a maestro is going to be gone after Negro Navarro stops and Virus stops and those different guys like Solar. Um, I would really love for, for young luchadors to present wrestling that way again. And the same thing when you go to England, um, you know, that Lancashire style is, is pretty much dying out over there. The last guys that are really using it are guys like, you know, Chris Ridgway and Zack Sabre Jr. And I'm probably missing a couple other guys, but it's not many of us left, but um, you know, I would like to, I would like to change that. Do you, th you, you make a great point because there is sort of that one style emphasis on high spots and dives and things like that for fans that have sort of, you know, maybe grown up on that. Um, you think it's just a mad matter of them having to be reeducated as to the pure wrestling style. Um, do you think they'll be accepting of it? Is there any chance that maybe um, they, they won't be? I mean, but that's, that's, that's the case with everything right now. You're going to have people that are into it and people that are not. It's going to be pretty much a 50-50 split on everything. I'm not saying that even though I do believe pure professional wrestling is the more superior style of wrestling, uh, I still feel like shows need to be a variety. I don't want an entire show. I don't want Ring of Honor to be filled with nothing but pure wrestlers. I want Ring of Honor to be a variety show. Again, I feel like we haven't been a variety show in many, many years. Um, so hopefully we'll be building towards being a variety show again and continuing being the alternative in professional wrestling. But to answer your question, I think people will be um, welcoming to it because once they see something different, somebody's going to gravitate towards it. If, if you can enjoy something, that means there's thousands, maybe millions of other people that enjoy something that you enjoy. Uh, that's why I always speak to students and like trainees about present wrestling the way that you enjoy it. Don't do something that you feel like you have to do to get on a show. Because I think that's why this style of wrestling has spread so much because uh, I'm not trying to down anybody, but a lot of promoters on the independents are super fans. I hate to use the term Mark because it's for some reason it's derogatory, but at some point we were all Marks, but um yeah, like they don't understand that their shows need to be a variety. People show up because they just love wrestling. But if you present them something different, more people will come because you have to realize that older people, like my mom, would still love to come to wrestling shows, but she just doesn't understand this new way of wrestling. So she can't really enjoy it. But if you have matches on the card that older people can enjoy, you'll see your demographic change. It will grow. It would look different than just young hipsters. But that's just me talking. Who knows if I know what I'm talking about or not? No, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think you do. And I think 
you're right. Ring of Honor um, always was, you know, maybe we have gravitated away from that because it was all the different styles. And I, I do think there's a place on the card for all those styles. Like you said, uh, you know, technical wrestling, Lucha Libre style, um, strong style, you know, brawlers, whatever it is. I think you want to see a good mix. You don't want to see the same match um, all night long with just, uh, you know, different people, but all doing kind of the same moves. So I think you, I, I definitely think you've hit on something. Uh, I want to ask you though about um, what your goals were when you first started this wrestling journey, I guess 15 years or so ago, what did you look at and say, this is my goal. Was it to get to the biggest company, which is WWE? Was it to get to ring of honor to go to Japan? Like what was in your mind of this is where I really want to be. Um, you know, I, I never had that. I just loved wrestling. Um, you know, I think a lot of it was uh, I realized when I started going, it was like middle school, elementary, middle school, I was like big. I was like the big kid. I was like, I know it's hard to believe, but I was like bigger than everybody. And then high school rolled around and everybody had their growth spurts or whatever. And then I went to school and realized, wow, everybody like got bigger and I'm still the same size. <laughs> so that's when I started realizing my size, but I was still in love with wrestling and I was an amateur wrestler, uh, did state championships, uh, different things like that. And um when I watched, you know, uh, the funny story with that is, uh, I got to say that, I guess, is that I only became an amateur wrestler because I thought that like any other sport, like football and baseball, you had to learn and do things like, you know, um, the amateurs first and then go to the pros. So I had this, I like convinced myself that I was going to learn amateur wrestling and, uh, eventually they were going to introduce the ropes and the turnbuckle and the entrances, but I had to learn the basics of wrestling first. You know, so Jeff, I never, Jeff Cobb told huh? me the exact, Jeff Cobb told me the exact same thing. He got into really? wrestling wanting to, because he thought it was the way to get into pro wrestling. He said the same thing. Yeah, man. I was always really embarrassed to ask my coach. Cause I was like, duh, of course it works like that. So I don't have to ask <laughs> these dumb questions, but uh, yeah, I, I found out when I was like, 14 or 15 or something like that, that I was completely wrong. Basically when the internet became like a bigger thing and I could like use it on my own and Google was around or Yahoo or whatever it was, I was actually able to go on and search for schools. And I realized, man, I'd never had to do this. All I had to do was freaking like pay some money and go get trained by a wrestler, you know? Um, but um, I'm sorry, what was the original question? Oh, my goal. Oh yeah. Okay. So um I watched WWE mainly. I, I, I watched like different things like from Mexico and FMW and stuff through tapes and stuff, but none, none of that stuff seemed possible to do or get to. Uh, WWE was looked impossible to me. So I, I always said I wanted to be a wrestler. I knew I was going to do it, but I never thought that I would try to go to WWE. It wasn't until, um, and you know, I talk about this often, only a few people have seen it, it seems like, but uh, around 2005, I think this video on YouTube was going around and it was um, a music video of like the era of honor begins. I think like the first couple shows of ring of honor and it was like a music video to it. And it was called two lions. And um, it, it just showed like the low key, amazing red, like cool spot, like that legendary spot where they were doing like Kung Fu Dragon Ball Z stuff. And um, does it showed everybody. And like, I watched that, that video that like three or four minute video religiously, like every day, multiple times to the point where I like fell in love with ring of honor. And that's when I told myself that, yo, I now know where I want to go. I want to go to ring of honor. 
like those guys seemed like, I don't know, closer to my age, maybe closer to my size. I'm not sure what really gravitated me towards it. I guess the, the sports element of it and just the different styles in one match. And it was, it looked like a competition to me and I was just drawn to it. So I made it a thing to tell myself that regardless of what happens, I'm going to wrestle for Ring of Honor. I have to wrestle for Ring of Honor. I never thought about Japan or anywhere else. Of course, I wanted to do those things, but I wanted to go to Ring of Honor. Um, and so that's pretty much how I was driven to get this far. <laughs> well, I know it wasn't um, certainly an overnight success type of thing. It took you several years to get to Ring of Honor. Uh, you were in the 2011 Top Prospect Tournament. You faced Kyle O'Reilly in the first round. Um, the winner of that, you know, everyone knows, I think the winner of the top prospect tournament gets a contract. You didn't win. You didn't get the contract. Did any doubt, I guess, maybe start to creep into you uh, at that point? Like, all right, this was my chance. Um, I'm in the top prospect tournament. I didn't come out of it with a contract. Uh, or did it make you even more determined to get there? It definitely made me more determined. I see a lot of guys, they get down when they go someplace and it's just like, they don't get picked up. It's like, that just tells you exactly what you need to know. You need to work on something. Or maybe it's timing. Like a lot of guys think it's always about them. It's just timing. Sometimes rosters are too full. Um, sometimes there's political stuff going on that you have no clue about because you're not in the company. There's so much other stuff. And it's just like all you got to do is like keep the course, keep doing what you're doing, don't give up, and then just like have multiple goals. Don't just have one. At the time, uh, you know, I was also dabbling with the idea of, following in the footsteps of like the guys that came before me. And I thought about like Jericho and Malenko, uh, you know, um, you know, Benoit, all those guys that like traveled the world. And in my mind, like Mysterio and guys like that, they, they finally made it to the WWE, but you know what they all have in common world already knew who they were. And so I thought to myself, yo, I want that kind of name. I don't, I want to be me for the remainder of my career. So let me travel around the world and, you know, um, uh, learn as much as I can so I can become one of the best and I can become undeniable. So that was my mindset after ring of honor. I was already like doing my travels and I was already in that mindset. But after that, and I wrestled Kyle O'Reilly, I looked at that as an accomplishment. It was like, wow, I got a chance to, you know, wrestle for ring of honor, my dream company, my utopia pretty much. And that all came from actually like, uh, I wrestled for IWA mid South and Chikara at the time. And I got a chance to wrestle with, um, uh, Tyler Black, who's now Seth Rollins, while he was Ring of Honor World Champion. And we had three matches, and, like, uh, he seemed to be happy with the matches. He gave me good feedback about them at the time. So I felt great, and I know that he, you know, had something to do with speaking to the office about me coming, and I believe I wrestled with Cabana as well. And I'm pretty sure he said, like, nice things about me too. But around that time as well, I got a chance to wrestle with Hunter at a Chikara show. And uh, that's pretty much how I got into the Top Prospects Tournament in 2011. So, you know, just the journey to me was worth it. I got a chance to wrestle for Chikara, which, like, was super popular. And, like, I, I admired a lot of the guys that came from there, like Hero and Claudio. So me being in those locker rooms and being able to, like, converse with those guys, like, it meant the world to me. It, it did so much for my my mental state and my my, my confidence, you know. I, I got good enough to make it to Chikara to be on the same card as these guys like that. That was awesome to me. So like getting the chance to get to ring of honor and then wrestling the top prospects tournament that just like, I don't know. It just gave me so much more of a confidence boost. So I, after that, I decided to go to Europe and I believe after that, I decided to move to France. Actually, I stayed in France for two years. 
So that was 2011. I moved to France in 2012, stayed the whole year. And then I moved back like mid-2013 or at the end of 2013. Wow. I mean, that must have been quite an experience living in France as a, as a young man, traveling the world and, and wrestling, living your dream. That, that's got to be, that's, that's pretty impressive. Well, it sounds impressive. That was a lot of me staying at airports and like sleeping in train stations while it was snowing outside. Like it, it was not like glamorous at all. Did you ever hear about the um, the volcano smoke cloud that was over like Ireland and stuff back in like 2010? Uh, no, nah, it doesn't ring a bell. Well, I was over and I was uh, I was doing an Irish whip tour. I was doing like a three show tour. And I wasn't making much at all. I think at the time, I think I made like off those three shows, I think I came home with like 100 euros, um, which is like a little bit, it might be like $120 at the time, $140 at the time. Anyway, as I bust myself back from the shows um, and I'm at Dublin airport, uh, I realized that like no flights are taken off. So uh, I had to like put this new chip in my phone from the airport, I had to buy a chip. So that was like $40 right there, put it on my phone so I could get Wi-Fi and stuff. And uh, I realized from the news that there was a smoke cloud over Ireland and most of Europe to where like a lot of the flights couldn't, couldn't fly in and out. So I was stuck at the airport and I had to go across the pond to England to wrestle for Brian Dixon uh, to make more money essentially, right? So um, I was in that airport for four days living off of something like 60 euros. So I was eating like McDonald's sandwiches and like literally like I would buy a sandwich and then one day I would like hour one, I would eat the bread only and then wrap it up and then unwrap it again, eat the meat and then wrap it back up. And then later on eat the bread just to stretch the money, man. Like all I had was my laptop and like some clothes, dude. So it was like not glamorous at all living in Europe. I, I had some really awful times, but oh, yeah, I wouldn't change. When you put it like that, man, I'm just thinking you in France and I don't know, I'm picturing the Eiffel Tower and I don't know, all these, all these glamour. <laughs> no, no, when you're no. eating those burgers, did you, was it a Roy, was it really a Royale with cheese or was that just a thing in the movie? No, it was not a Royale with cheese. I was eating off the dollar menu. Oh. The Euro menu. Yeah. I was trying to stretch it, man. I wasn't drinking sodas. I was drinking like cups of water, like the free water that you give you, that they give you. Like I was drinking that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You were a starving artist. Hey, yeah, man. Like I was, I was dude. And I like, I was trying to send money back home and stuff too. Cause I had things to, like take care of at the time. So like any like large lump sum of money that I got, I would literally like send the bulk of it back home through like Western union or something. And then just like live off of whatever I could. And thank God that I knew people like, you know, uh, the fight club pro guys and, uh, Chris Brooks, I crashed at Chris Brooks and uh, Tyler Bate like most of the time when I was in Europe, uh, or in England anyway, not living in France. So if wow. it wasn't for those guys, I would have been starving. Wow. I did not know any of this. Wow. I thought when I, when I read that, you know, you've been to 14 countries and four continents and, yeah, I was just thinking it was like this jet set, you know, lifestyle, traveling the world, doing what you love, which I guess no. you were, but I, you know, I'm not thinking about the, the dollar menus and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, dude, like, I have to bring up this one, too. It was my first time in Mexico for DTU. Uh, well, not my first time. It was like my first time being like flown because I've done like the tours where you drive across and go into Monterey, Mexico, and then do a couple of shows and come back. But this was like a proper tour. 
as proper as they get on this level, I guess. Anyway, so I had to go to Tulancingo. So this is like deep in Mexico, pretty much right before you get to like the border, like south, south of Mexico. So um, I do one show. I fly in. We do one show at Narina, Arena Nezu. And uh, uh, I have to bring this up. The dude I wrestled, Drastic Boy, really good wrestler, really good luchador. Uh, he wanted to do this dive. And uh, I was like, yeah, sure, man, whatever. So I didn't get a chance to, you know, check out the ring at all. So uh, I get there. We go straight to the back. We plan the match. He asked to do a dive. I'm like, yeah. The promoter says, hey, Gresham, can you do like American style, like falsies, please? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Okay. So I planned all these like head drops and like that. So we go out there and I realized that the canvas has been painted. They paint the canvas every show. Actual paint <laughs> on like those those glossy mats, like the ones that like when you get sweaty you slip. Yeah. So like it's fresh paint, and I'm like the third or fourth match. So I go out there. I don't realize it until like midway through the match that my my gear has paint on it, and I'm like these dudes are what the hell. So I'm pissed off at that. I get tossed outside. I'm about to catch this dive when I hit the floor, which I realized when I did the entrance that like the rings in Mexico are super tall. Like, I don't know why they're so tall. Like the ring apron was like above my eyes. So this dude dived. I had to catch him because I was afraid because it was like uh, a concrete floor. So I said, I have to catch this guy. I can like not, not catch him. So when I catch him, my whole right side goes numb because he came from so high up that when he hit my back, it made like a, a chop sound, like smack. And then when I caught him, I went to the floor, my whole right side went numb. So uh, I'm pretty sure you heard the stories about like Mexico rings, like being hard, right? Yes, absolutely. Right. That's why they roll. So like, I mean, I already knew this, but for some reason it just like, I, I wasn't thinking when I was planning the match. So we go back in and I had these falsies to do for the finish of the match. All of them were head drops, bro. So like I was hitting my head on like this freaking wood canvas. You know oh. what I mean? Like, and my right side was already dead. So like that was a really rough. And then finally after the show, it wasn't a car. They packed us up in the back of like a ring truck with the ring. And so they're driving and the thing stops. The door opens. The promoter comes out. He drops me off at this hotel. He walks with me in the lobby and he helps me get my key. After that, he gets back in, waves to me. Bye. He drives away. Literally a dirt road. It was a dirt road, bro. No, no concrete, no cement, <laughs> no nothing. And so I go into my room and it's the worst room ever. There's like half a mirror there, like it's cracked off, broken. They told me there was Wi-Fi, but it only works if I get really close to the window. Um, anyway, clip notes, the next morning, I go out to talk to the guy about getting a new room to get Wi-Fi. I shit you not, I look outside at the road. The first time in my life, I saw a tumbleweed, like in the movies, like cowboy movies, like go across the road. <laughs> Like, I was just like, wow, that was a tumbleweed. Okay. Anyway, so he gives me another key to another room. I, I go in there. Uh, the Wi-Fi essentially doesn't work there. And uh, I go back. So I go through a couple of rooms. Clip notes of the rooms. Like, one room was really good. But then I went to the restroom, and the restroom was just overflowing with, like, feces and stuff. So I said, okay, can't have that one. Finally, after a couple of rooms, something was wrong with each room. I finally get to the last room. Wi-Fi is perfect. Toilet's perfect. Bathtub's good. I'm like, cool. I lay down on the bed. I'm, you know, on my phone surfing and everything, talking to people, catching up. And I hear like rumbling up under the covers. So I'm like, what is that? I get up, 
I pull the covers back, use condoms all up under the covers. And I'm like, wow, wow, man. So I go back to the office. I'm like, look, dude, I just want the first room you gave me. And he gave me that. And I just had to sit by the window for Wi-Fi all day for the rest of the week that I was there in Mexico. So that's like a movie right there. Dude, man, I have so many stories of like messed up stuff that's happened to me through like tours, even in Japan, man. Like it was never glamorous, dude. Never. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you about what I hope was a good memory in Japan, which was uh, competing in the uh, best of the Super Juniors. Now that had to be an amazing experience. Yeah, it really was, man. Um, you know, like uh, I I I overthink stuff, and I think overthinking is really good. It could be toxic sometimes, but if 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 you're thinking overthinking in the right direction, it's normally really good for you. Um, so I went there really not knowing what's going on or like how the things are going to work. Hotels and everything was great. I was actually able to catch up with some friends that I had uh, from there, from other companies and stuff. So that was really good. Wrestling in Japan is always awesome. The crowds are great. But the number one thing at this point is just like, okay, I have to make this tournament work for me. And I kept thinking, you know, I know I'm not winning it, you know, because if I was like somebody would have came to me and told me by now, so I don't even know like how I'm going to do in this tournament. So I got to make sure that like I'm going to be memorable. The number one thing was uh, the language barrier, which I've dealt with several times, but this is on a different level. All these guys are like superstars and you want to make good impressions and work with guys and not be difficult. So my style is very slow and methodical and more story driven. And the style in the super juniors is very high octane, fast paced and I could see that my style unless I was placed with certain guys wouldn't really get over so I was kind of bummed out about that but I try to see the good in everything so I realized that I wasn't going to do matches like Will Osprey and Shingo and guys like that and you know what they do is great but that's not my cup of tea I don't even want to do that kind of stuff so I thought to myself how can I just enjoy my time here so I say, you know what? A lot of people don't do, and the only time they really get it is when Colt Cabana's in town. I'm going to do me some comedy. So a lot of my matches had comedy in it, and I just enjoyed myself, man. I knew I wasn't winning, so I just said, screw it. Let me just have some fun, <laughs> you know? Yeah, man, that's a, a good approach to take. Yeah. All right, well, we're gonna, we've got a few more things to get to. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be back with more with this fascinating conversation with uh, Jonathan Gresham right after this. Hi, I'm Quinn McKay, the host of Ring of Honor's weekly YouTube show, Week by Week. Join me every Monday, the same day as this podcast, as we catch up on all the groundbreaking ROH news and get some exclusive comments from some of your favorite stars. We also have some really great weekly segments like Question of the Week and my personal favorite, the Week by Week Physique. Join me every Monday at 1 p.m. on social media and youtube.com slash Ring of Honor for Week by Week. All right, we are back on the ROH Strong Podcast. We're talking to Jonathan Gresham. I uh, wanted to ask you a question about um, sometimes technical wrestlers, if they don't have a real distinct character, they get the dreaded good hand label. Do you think that, that maybe some promoters over the years kind of saw you that way? Like, ah, he's a good hand, which is sort of a compliment, but not really. Not at all. I, my reputation never preceded me. Uh, from me being uh, quadruple champions when I was in Japan uh, for the second run 
because I had a, a run in DDT, then I had a run with uh, Zero One, and then, you know, more f- recently, New Japan stuff. But yeah, uh, after I came back, because uh, I was living in Europe when I was doing all my uh, Japanese stuff with Zero One, I had won the Tenkaichi Junior Tournament. Uh, I was the first foreigner to do that. Um, then I had won the international junior title. So uh, after that came the uh, NWA Japan junior title. And then I won the zero one USA junior heavyweight championship. So I was holding four titles at the time. And, you know, I thought, you know, okay, so I'm doing this when I return to America, like I'll start getting some stuff. Little did I know, no one gave a damn about that. So when I came back, I was back at the beginning of the cards wrestling at the bottom and having to work my way up. So when I went back to CZW, that was the same thing. When I came back and worked for ring of honor, ring of honor didn't care about that either. Um, no one cared. And it was, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks that like everything that I'd have been doing up to that point, nobody was recognizing it. Nobody cared. And um, yeah, it kind of hurt, but you know, I just kept grinding, man. And I, I, I actually, you know, in hindsight, you know, thinking about it, and I, I talked to somebody about this the other day on a podcast, but uh, I actually appreciate now, you know, people not giving me things because, oh, I did something over here or over there, because it made me work even harder each time to become undeniable. And I think that's what helped me get to this point now uh, that I'm at in Ring of Honor is just like uh, working hard. I have that kind of work ethic that like, I feel like a lot of guys don't have because their reputation precedes them and they can just do the same thing each time they don't have to like recreate themselves or recreate their 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 spots or anything like that you know so uh, it, it actually helped me out a lot that that uh that was the way promoters viewed me they didn't view me as a good hand they just looked at me as like oh we hear about them sometimes let's book them whatever right <laughs> did you hear a lot that um i mean was your size ever something that constantly came up or that you felt like held you back or you had to work maybe twice as hard as guys of a different size to, to, I don't know, either get noticed or, or have some upward mobility on the card? Oh, definitely. Size had a, a huge, there was a, I won't call any names, but uh, yeah, CZW, um, that was a huge issue, you know, because before I actually started working out and giving a damn about like, you know, getting bigger, I was always worried about just in ring. I, I wasn't worried about character. I was just trying to be the best wrestler I could be. And so, like, um, I think I was good enough to have good matches with anybody on the card at that point. But I think a lot of guys didn't want to lose to me because I was smaller than them or whatever like that. And that didn't really become super clear to me until, you know, uh, I started wrestling for Ring of Honor because that, that kind of happened within the company as well. I could feel it. You don't really get talked to about it, but you can feel it. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so, yeah, that was a thing. Uh, the only time that I really heard it um, – was in a company called GCW in Phoenix City, Phoenix City, Alabama, back when I like first started. I want to say it was like 2005, something like that. Uh, Sonny Siaki was on the show, and um, he had put me over for always like having good opening matches. And um, I went to the promoter and I asked him, "Hey, like, how do I, you know, start?" climbing the card like I want to be like a challenger for like you know the secondary title here and just like you know have a story and do stuff like that and the promoter said something to the effect of like you're exactly where you're supposed to be opening the show and like starting off hot or whatever like that he didn't see me as anything more than just like 
setting the tone for the show. And don't get me wrong, that's a very important spot to have. But I also believe like it's it's important for wrestlers to be able to learn through experience how to play every part of the show. Main event, first match, curtain jerker, you know, everything. Like, you know, uh, dark match, like every spot on the card has its place and 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 purpose, you know what I mean? And uh, they weren't trying to allow me to learn those things. So I knew I had to get out of there and I had to get out of the South. The South still has this uh, mentality towards wrestling that they can't shake for some reason. And I had to just get out of there. So yes, it was very clear to me back then that that was something that people held over me. I want to ask you about the foundation videos that you shot, uh, which I thought were really awesome. Um, how did they come about? Was that all your idea, the whole concept and everything? Very much, yes. Um, I, I have been sitting on this idea for a long time. I remember talking to Todd Sinclair about my ideas. I didn't, I'm always careful with how much information I give people because, um, and I'm, I'm going to say this because I, I feel like this is something that actually happened and I was actually kind of pissed off about it. And uh, I'm at this point, I don't care. I stopped caring a long time ago. But um, the, the lifeblood gimmick, in my mind was exactly what I was trying to do. And I remember cutting a promo that never got produced in the back. And, uh, you know, they were like, wow, that was good. And I was like, thanks. Yeah, that's what I really feel. And then all of a sudden it never got produced. And the next thing I know, a couple of months later, they have lifeblood pretty much saying verbatim what I was saying, Hmm. Um, you know, and uh, I was really upset because that was my voice. That was my message. And it was, I felt like it was given to someone else. And, um, well, the foundation thing, I kept trying to push it. I kept trying to ask for time to do stuff. So I got tired of it and I just started cutting my own stuff. And I got with, um, Kenny Johnson. He did a lot of stuff with Evolve. Uh, he did tremendous work with those guys. So I said, I gotta, I gotta get this guy to help me with my, my stuff. And, um, he and I would hook up and, um, film my vignettes and I wrote my own script and, uh, you know, he gave his his, uh, his ideas and stuff that helped out a lot with a lot of the visuals and stuff. Um, but yeah, it was all my idea, man. I've been sitting on it for a few years and I just got tired of waiting for someone to allow me to do it. So I just started doing it myself. I actually told myself if ring of honor doesn't pick it up, I'll just do it on the Indies because I, I believe in this It's something that to me is real, you know? So. Yeah. Well, like I said, it was, it was great stuff because it was the kind of thing that when you saw them, you just had to like, you're what's, you know, like it, it grabbed your attention. You're like, wait a minute, what's this? Uh, just the way it was shot, the visuals, uh, you with the, you know, the octopus mask, uh, you know, you dressed in a suit, like all things, you know, we're not, maybe not, weren't used to seeing in you doing ring of honor. Um, and it, yeah, it made you ask, like, it made you ask questions. Like, what is this all about? Where is this going? So yeah, I thought, I thought they were, like I said, they were really attention grabbing and really good. And I'm glad that, you know, you're bringing the foundation now uh, to Ring of Honor. So, you know, hopefully we do get to see it play on a, you know, on a, on a bigger stage. Um, I wanted to ask you briefly about, you know, a few of the programs that you've had in Ring of Honor that I think, well, you, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. I don't know. I think there's like three programs that really helped you connect more with the audience. And they were Bully Ray, Silas Young, and obviously the three-match series, uh, with Jay. Uh, can you, can you talk about each of those and how you feel they, you know, if you do feel this way that they maybe helped you? I, I really don't know. 
Um, I, uh, I don't tend to go back and watch anything that I do. Um, but I did recently. Um, I went back and watched the Silas matches. And um, I really didn't like them because I felt like the crowd, well, the first one I felt fine with, which I think we wrestled in, um, in Vegas, I think it was. And then we wrestled uh, the, the pure match and I didn't feel great about it. But then I went back and watched all the matches in order. And it was basically, I think, management's idea was doing a feud, but backwards. So you start off with the most violent stuff, and then it goes into normal wrestling, where you would normally be at the beginning of a wrestling story. And so I thought that was interesting. So, you know, I was like, cool, it was a three-match series. And um, I think Silas is literally one of the most versatile workers that we have in Ring of Honor. He can play any part. Uh, he's a really good heel, like not not just a cool heel, but like a real heel, someone that garners heat, that allows you to like get the sympathy you need for people to give a damn about your comeback. Like he is an actual heel. There's not a lot of guys that give a damn to do that now, but he cares about that. And that's that's something that I respect a lot. Uh, so I learned a lot about Silas through that series. But I also learned a lot about how to be a better heel, like working with guys like Silas, like I dibble and dabble in being a heel when I go to, um, when I go to Europe and work at CCK with my partner, Chris Brooks. And I learned a lot from working with Silas in that program. He doesn't get enough credit. Um, then of course, uh, I honestly believe that series, I believe um, the matches with Shelly as well. Um, but also the one match that kind of goes under the radar uh, I never watched it until somebody like tagged me in like a review or something on Twitter. So I decided to go back and watch the match. It was a match that I had with Cody. Uh, it was in Texas. And uh, I think that match for the people in attendance saw how we wrestled and how we vibed and how the match played out. I think that got me a lot of, uh, a lot of respect within, you know, the world of wrestling that match. And then of course the series with Jay Lethal as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was remiss. The, the matches with Shelly, obviously, yeah, also really great. I, just, I remember the, there was a in-ring promo, I think, with, with Bully Ray where uh, he was berating you or whatever it was, and all of a sudden you fired up on the mic. And I thought mm -hmm. that was a little bit of a turning point because the crowd went wild. The crowd popped huge for it. And then when you guys had a match, um, I thought it was very believable. You know, the bully, I mean, he's twice your size. Um, he is the, a bully, but I thought that uh, the way you guys worked it, it was, it was very believable. And, uh, and I, you know, I think, again, I think that was maybe a little bit of a turning point with the fans really getting behind you. That's, I don't know. That's why I saw it as a, as an observer. I don't know if you felt that okay. way. Well, yeah, it's really, I think it's difficult for people to, that's why these conversations are very important because like you see something completely different. And then I have to go back. So I'm going to have to go back on Honor Club and, and watch that match to see how the crowd reacted, to watch the story unfold and just watch those segments between Bully and I. But, um, but yeah, I remember, like, the one thing I really took away from that, uh, that feud is, uh, you know, we do it in ring where we give guys ideas. So one guy is like, okay, we're going to do this, but I don't have something for this. So the other guy that's, you know, in the match with him gives him a move to actually do, you know, and um, it kind of completes the spot so we can now move on, right? But like, I'm not, like, I, I'm more so 
into doing promos now than I was before. But the one thing I learned was that like, I always thought guys just get on the mic and just like talk at each other and just do it organically. Um, and bully came to me and like spoke to me about it and kind of set it up where I had a line to get over. So he made sure that I had a line to get over. He told me how I had to say it and like, you know, my body language and everything. So like that kind of opened my mind to, okay, promos aren't what I thought they were. Cause I was so like, not afraid. I was just so against talking because I felt like what I had to say, people didn't want to hear. But now I feel like, you know, I have more of a narrative to like use as my base to talk. And I think that was very important, but I learned all of that from working with bully. So as far as like the matches and getting over the crowd, I never thought that I never thought I got that rub from the, from the program. I more so thought I learned kayfabe stuff that the fans didn't know I was learning, you know, from bully. Gotcha. And that was all about how to like construct promos and I, all of that, that I learned from that segment gave me confidence to move forward with my voice as the foundation. And I think you can see it. You could see the confidence now when you, when you do speak. Um, I think it was very evident. Uh, you know, I just watched not too long ago, kind of the, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, the sizzle reel uh, previewing uh, your first round match with Wheeler Yuta and uh Man, you look very relaxed, very composed. Uh, you know, you look like, um, you know, you've been cutting promos all your life and, and, very, and, and, and very confident in doing so. So I think. Well, well, well you know, to be honest, that, that, that came a lot for me. Just like <laughs> I, I message them all the time. I'm pretty sure I annoy the hell out of them. But like I watch loads of Jay Lethal DVDs because I think he's the best promo in the business. So I like. I like stole a lot of his like mannerisms and stuff. So I, I spoke to him about it recently and he was like, yeah, I noticed like one or two things. And I was like, all right, yeah, yeah. So I'm doing it right now. <laughs> well, they, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but you don't do a Jay Lethal imitation like uh, Shaheem Ali does, do you? Oh, I could never do that. He is so good at that. He is. Like, I could never do that. Has he ever like prank called you as Jay? No, but I would probably totally fall for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did it on the show. When we had Jay on the show, it was one of our first uh, episodes. Uh, we had Ali do a do a Jay in, impersonation. It was dead on. <laughs> dead on. All right, well, we're going to take uh, our final break, and then we're going to come back and do 10 questions with Jonathan Gresham right after this. Tonight, we'll be discussing another very important topic, wrestling in the COVID-19 era. Phone rang, and it was someone from uh, Ring of Honor office, and they said, look, this is bigger than wrestling. This is a pandemic. Nobody knew exactly what coronavirus was. Ring of Honor was one of the only companies to completely shut down and say no. If there's a virus out there that you can catch just by being within six feet of somebody, imagine wrestling somebody. You're gonna be a lot closer than six feet. I have huge, huge fears. I'm scared S-less, to be perfectly frank. ROH Roundtable, now available on youtube.com slash ring of honor. All right, we are back on the ROH Strong Podcast. My guest is Jonathan Gresham. Uh, it's now time to play 10 questions. Jonathan, are you ready? Yes. And it is now time for 10 questions with Kevin. All right, question number one. 
What's something on your bucket list? Wow. Mm, bucket list. Could be wrestling, but doesn't have to be. Mm, I, this sounds really bad, but it's because, like, my life up to this point, I was never able to do it. But I want to save a certain amount of money in my bank account. I know that sounds very bad, I guess, or cliche, but like I, I've never had, I'm 32 years old and uh, I, I've never had like a real savings account until the last like two years. So like I'm doing better as an adult now, you know what I mean? So like I have this amount of money that I want to put away and start investing and things of that nature. So that's pretty much my list now. <laughs> no, that's that's practical, but uh, obviously, you know, you got a wedding to pay for, um, got a mortgage that's now, now. You know, yeah, that's somewhere down the line, kids will probably come into it. Once you got those mouths to feed, take it from my personal experience that the bank account mm. drains a little. Okay. <laughs> Question number two: If you could have a conversation with anyone alive or dead, who would it be? My auntie Grace. Okay, someone who was influential in your life, I guess, growing up. You know, there was something that happened when I was a child that I wanted to apologize for, and I never got a chance to apologize because I wasn't mature enough to understand that I was wrong. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, question number three: What's the best advice that you've been given about pro wrestling, and who gave it to you? Best advice, man. I I don't think I've gotten any advice from anyone that was like things I hadn't heard before, right? You know, um, but I don't know. It wasn't a wrestler. Um, I can't remember who it was. It might have been something in a movie. Okay. And uh, when I was younger, I, I watched movies all the time when I was younger. And um, essentially, it was something along the lines of uh, you can't let anybody, like, distract you from your goals. No matter what they say or what they do, you have to live your life for you. It was something along those lines. And after I heard that, that was, like, the realest thing I ever heard. So I was just like, regardless of what happens, regardless of my mom wanted me to do other stuff, she wanted me to go to school. She wanted me to do other stuff. She wanted me, my dad wanted me to do other stuff. Other people that I knew wanted me to do other stuff, but I said, no, I'm doing wrestling. And, uh, you know, when I started appearing and stuff overseas, that's when it really hit my family members that, wow, he can actually do this, you know? So um, as long as you have that vision, you know, nobody else is going to have that same, that same vision you have. You just have to keep going. You can't let anybody distract you. So I heard it from a movie. I want to say Will Smith said it. <laughs> okay. Well, since you mentioned movies, I, uh, question number four is a movie question. Uh, mm -hmm. I hope you've seen some of these. So the question is, which is the best among these three movies? Which is the best movie? Ready to Rumble, okay. No Holds Barred, or Nacho Libre? I guess Nacho Libre. Okay. Well, we had David Arquette on a couple weeks ago. We won't tell him it's not ready. You know, I, I think even he would probably wouldn't say Ready to Rumble. Have <laughs> <laughs> All right, question number five. I know that you were a wrestling fan when you were younger. What's your earliest memory that you can recall of pro wrestling? Literally sitting on a couch 
and I remember Bam Bam Bigelow beating the crap out of somebody. That's it. He was actually the first person I saw, and I was like, I love wrestling. <laughs> the tattoo on the head, right? That, that kept, yep. kept your attention right away. Yep, yep. All right, question number six. Are you a dog person, cat person, both or neither? Both. I got two cats, Billy and Buddy. Okay. But no dogs? Getting a dog when we move, finally, because okay. I'm still in Baltimore to finish up some stuff. Gotcha. All right, question number seven. I know that you are a soon-to-be-happily-married man, but do you have a celebrity crush? I mean, we all have them. Oh, man. Um, celebrity crush. I really don't. Hmm. I, I really don't. Well, that's probably the smart answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I didn't think about that. She could probably hear this or somebody to talk about it. So yeah, let's stick with that because I was about okay. to come up with something, but let's let's stick with that. Okay. All right, question number eight. What's the first concert that you attended? I attended a Seven Dust concert. No, 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 no. I My first ever concert, I was like 12, and I went to a Lit concert. Wow. Okay. not sure if you know that band. I know yeah. Lit, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a lip fan. Sleeping with the Enemy or something like that was their big hit? My own worst enemy. My own worst enemy. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let me see. I'm, I think I'm, I'm losing track of the questions here. Did I ask you? I think we're already on question number 10, I believe. You know what? I think I only have nine questions here, so I'm going to make up another one. All right. Uh, here's one. I guess this is question nine. Have you ever eaten or would you ever eat octopus? No, they're family. I was just going to say, that's almost like cannibalism, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, the last question I will ask you is, since I know that you're also a coach at the, uh, at the ROH Dojo, um, what's the advice? I asked, you asked earlier, I guess, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? What advice or what do you like to impart to your students? Um... I was having, I was talking to one of the trainees the other day, um, back in 2011, and this is when it really became clear to me. I would always do it, but this day made it a thing that I, I would do all the time. And not a lot of guys like to do it, but uh, I always say, when you go to a show, I know you got a match to plan. Don't go straight to your opponent and start planning your match. Get dressed go to the ring, stretch out, and literally wrestle with anybody that shows up. Um, I learned this a few years ago, and I, I wouldn't do it all the time, but I would do it sometime. This particular time, uh, it was 2011, Jeff Peterson Cup for FIP, and um, I was taking on uh, Bobby Fish in the first round, uh, and we had talked a little bit, and then something made me go into the ring. I'm not sure what it was. He wasn't with me. I went in the ring by myself. I started stretching. I turn around and on the apron was Nigel McGinnis in full wrestling training gear, knee pads. So at this time, it was like his farewell tour he was about to do in England, or I think he had just finished it and came over. So at this time, I was already traveling and going to England and Germany and stuff like that. So he said, I turned around, I saw him and he said, hey, you want to roll? And I was like, yeah, for sure. So we started rolling and we wrestled for maybe 20 minutes, man. And I just 
allowed him to like just do whatever and he allowed me to do some stuff and we just was vibing and then afterwards we sat and he took time to talk to me for like maybe another 20 minutes and came to find out that when he went to England he worked for and stayed with the company that I worked with and stayed with which is Fight Club Pro and I would go over and he was like so you're Gresham then you're the guy that worked for Dixon and he tried to make you Black Tiger because you're black. And I was like, yeah, that's me. And so we had a laugh about that because that was a story that goes around England a little bit. Um, but uh, I learned from him that like that moment, the beginning of the show is where two guys or anybody really can get in the ring and understand each other and learn from each other with just a simple roll around. It's like the language of wrestling to me is grappling. It's, it's modern freestyle grappling just going in there and, and just learning from each other like a lot of guys will hold back and keep a couple of reverses in their pocket because they don't want anybody to steal it but when you get in there you don't care about that you know he was at the end of his career he didn't care so he was doing all these cool things and these cool british stories that like i had never seen before and like he was teaching me as i was like getting rolled around and so to me like the biggest thing i have to say is just like when you go to a show just screw everything else take that time to put your clothes on and get in the ring and wait for somebody to get in the ring with you and eventually you're going to look at that person they're going to look at you and you're going to go hey you want to roll and just say yes don't say nothing else just wrestle 5 10 15 20 minutes to an hour just just roll and um you'll be amazed what you learn about each other and about yourself it's just it's the essence of wrestling man it's beautiful that's great, man. That's a great, that's a great story and, and great advice. You're passing along, you're handing down the lessons, the lessons learned. So uh, good stuff. Well, Jonathan, I, I really uh, want to say thank you. Uh, you were very generous with your time today. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything you want to give out as far as uh, social media, where people can find you, uh, anything you'd like to plug? Um, not really. I have a Twitter, like, uh, it's, the John Gresham. And then I have Instagram, uh, Jonathan Gresham, you know, like, to be honest, uh, if I wasn't a wrestler, I wouldn't use social media at all. Mm. So um, the biggest thing I, I would like to say this to the people listening and fans, hopefully like uh, wrestling can be really toxic. Definitely the communities that we decide to communicate with each other in. Um, and a lot of the time we speak out of ignorance uh, because we don't know certain things. So I would really appreciate if people can start, educating themselves before saying something negative about people because you got to remember um you know early on in my career i did a lot of like the reading the message boards and stuff like that to see what people thought of me and people would say some really mean things you know and uh you know over time i had to grow really thick skin and learn how to control my emotions and everything like that because i would get in a real funk sometimes and that would last for days weeks at a time um, because this is something i love and i'm passionate about and uh, you got people just willing to tear you down in any 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 moment, you know? So uh, if you guys could just like do, do more research, you know, New Japan is not the only Japanese company in the world. Watch Noah, watch Dragon Gate, Michinoku Pro, uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling. There's great wrestlers just waiting to be discovered there all over England. There's more to, to Europe than just progress in WXW. There's more to Mexico than CMLL and AAA. Um, do your homework. Uh, don't be ignorant. Don't be happy with being ignorant. Um, to support wrestlers, uh, come out with signs. I know it was a thing that was done more so in the attitude era, but that, 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 that just helps with confidence for the competitors in the ring, seeing signs and, 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 and tributes to the, to, to, to their characters and things of that nature. Um, 
yeah, I hope all that made sense. <laughs> no, it made great sense. And I think, it, you know, wise words, uh, all of it. And I think, uh, yeah, as far as the social media stuff goes, I think you're right. You know, there's always going to be trolls out there who just seem to enjoy trying to tear other people down. And uh, yeah, if anything that anyone can do to, you know, make it a more positive experience is certainly welcomed in this day and age. Uh, for so sure. Great. Wise words for sure. But John, thanks again. Like I said, uh, you're very generous with your time and uh, man, good luck in everything going forward. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. And hey, thanks to everybody for listening. Keep it locked into ROHwrestling.com and ROH's social media channels at Ring of Honor on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Facebook.com slash Ring of Honor for news of when and where future episodes of the ROH Strong podcast will be available. This is Kevin Eck saying, stay safe, everyone, and let's all be ROH strong. Uh, you are listening to ROH strong, and, uh, you know, thank you very much. And uh, we, we thank you.